Good evening, everybody. Tonight's second Bible reading is Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Good evening, friends. Well, tonight is going to be our last in our series from Matthew, so we'll finish at 25. We'll continue next year and finish finally the Gospel of Matthew, so we'll do the last few chapters next year. But next week, we're starting a new series. What's the new series we're going to be starting on next week? Romans, that's right. So many of the growth groups have already started studying Romans, but do prepare yourself by reading ahead in Romans. That will be helpful, uh, coming prepared, having uh, read and thought about the passage yourself. Uh, but tonight we'll have a look at this. Uh, let's pray to God for his help. Heavenly Father, as we've just heard uh, from your word and heard you speak to us, we pray that we'll continue to hear you speak to us as we reflect deeper on these words. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll not just inform our minds, but that you'll be convicting our hearts and changing and conforming our wills to your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for 
For those of you who are Christians, and that is, if you understand already the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, you understand what he did for you, he willingly, joyfully went to the cross for you, for your salvation, for your eternal life, and if you already understand that, and you already believe that, then a question for you, and that is, have you ever wondered how unique your life is? Now, I don't mean here what every mother says to her own child. You know, every mother says, you're my child. Of course, you're unique. You're beautiful. You're precious. You're special. You're so cute. And I'm sure in the eyes of your mothers, you are very cute. But the question I'm asking is this. Have you wondered how unique your life is as a Christian? Have you ever thought of your life this way? And that is... How this world, and that is your, your friends, your family, your peers, your colleagues, how this world responds to you and the gospel you proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. Have you thought about that before? I'll say that again. How this world responds to you and the gospel you proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. Have you ever thought about your life in that way, that God has entrusted with such power, with such responsibility as you live out this life of yours? Have you ever thought how unique your life is as a Christian? You see, if you actually understand this, then you can understand why Christians would do the crazy things that Christians do. If you understand this, then you'll understand why Christians would go out of their way to put their reputation on the line because of their faith in Jesus if you understand this then you understand why Christians will put their comfort on the line because of their faith in Jesus if you understand this then you understand why Christians would even put their life on the line because of their faith in Jesus that's why we as Christians we do the things we do such as evangelism we go out door knocking at the end of last year before Christmas we went out door knocking around here and sometimes we just look desperate as Christians. Why would you do such a silly thing? Go around door knocking trying to start a conversation with people and we just look desperate. Why would we do such a thing? I remember knocking a door on a house that way and the, the man there just said, I'm a philosopher, which was his way of saying, I don't need your religion. Or why would we go out and speak to strangers on the street? The lollipop ladies around here, the other week I spoke to one, she noticed our, our church sign, the, the sermon title. And so I had a chat with her and I said, I suggested to her, why don't you come and visit us? Um, come in and hear what we're on about. We'd love to have you. Her response was, was respectful, but she said, I don't believe in organized religion. Why do we continue and persist if these are the responses we get? Or why do we go out to do outreach? We've gone out to Box Hill many times to share the gospel with strangers. You're standing there in the moor, and sometimes you just look weird. These desperate Christians handing out flyers. Sometimes you might even look stupid or pathetic, trying to start up a conversation with people who are busy with their lives. Why would Christians do such a thing? And last time a conversation I had with this guy, he said, I, I don't need God to make sense of life. I don't need your God. I, I can make sense of my life. I don't need God to tell me what to do. But why would anyone, why would any one of us do such a thing? 
persevere in evangelism, persist in being a witness to Christ. Come to our training event on Tuesday night. There's a little plug. Why? Because of this. How this world responds to you and the gospel you proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. You see, when you understand that, then you come to understand the heart of missionaries, the heart of Christian witness, the heart of Christian martyrs, those who even lay down their life for the sake of Christ. This past week, I've been reading of the life of Richard Wormbrand. Many of you may have heard of him. His life was truly remarkable, just unbelievable that anyone could have lived such a life. Now, this man, Richard Wormbrand, born in 1909 in Romania of Jewish descent, grew up as a convinced atheist, but then later became a Christian, converted to Christianity. Later in life, he even became a Lutheran pastor. But because of his faith and because of the times in which he lived, crazy things he endured for the sake of his faith, unimaginable to us. He lived during the time of Nazi Germany. He was in Romania, but Nazi Germany was in power as well. They persecuted Christians, both he and his wife. They were arrested several times by the Nazis, beaten and tortured. But yet he continued. It got me questioning, why would you continue if you were hurt and brutalized in such a way? But under, Nazi, under the Nazis was not the worst yet. The worst was still to come. And that was when the communists came to power in the mid-40s. One million Russian troops went into Romania. They came to power. Communism was in power. And he mentioned in his book, the persecution under communism made suffering under the Nazis seem easy. In his famous book, Tortured for Christ, he speaks of the type of torture he experienced, the type of torture Christians experience. They're really the stuff that horror movies are made of. They're brutal, horrific, sickening things that you just can't imagine that anyone would do to another human being. He describes some of these in his book, a bit too graphic to say now, but worth reading if you have the guts for it. He was in prison in total for about 14 years. His wife was also imprisoned because she believed as well, imprisoned for five of those years. And they had a son. And what happened was when they both were in prison, the son who was only nine years old was left to wander the streets on his own. You see, because they were Christians, it was a crime to care for any family members of Christians who have been imprisoned. His son, nine years old, was left to fend for himself. For himself. Two ladies, however, helped him. But because they helped someone who was a family member of someone who was in prison, they too were arrested. They too were beaten so badly that they were permanently crippled for life. I mean, just read off these stories, just... Unbelievable, how could this have happened? It's hard to believe that such a thing can still happen and did happen. But then in 1964, this man and his family, they were eventually ransomed. Uh, ransomed for $10,000 by two Christian organizations. They left Romania and then he went on to establish the international organization called Voice of the Martyrs. Have you heard of that? 
an organization that seeks to help and uh, look after the martyrs and the families of those who are martyred. But when you hear of stories like his, you have to ask, why would any Christian endure all those things and not just denounce Christ? Why would he do all of that and even put his family members in danger? Why would he persist and persevere in the faith if it costed him so much? Well, it's because he understood that, that, that idea, didn't he? He understood that how this, res- this world responds to him and the gospel he proclaimed, that will determine their eternal destiny. He understood his place in this world. And that's what we must understand tonight because this is what this passage teaches us. Now, over the last few weeks, we've already been considering we're in the period of the last days. We know that. We're in the period between the first return of Jesus and his second coming. He's already died, uh, raised to life, ascended into heaven, and is ruling today. And the very next thing in God's agenda is for his return. That will be judgment day. That will be the day of reckoning. And what do we do now in our life? Well, we prepare for that day, whenever that is, by trusting in Jesus. And we use our days by being useful and fruitful and faithful with all that God has entrusted us in maximizing the course of the gospel. That's what we heard last week. And so in this passage, once again, again, we hear of the return of Jesus. Have a look at verse 31. Verse 31 we read, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Jesus will return, and when he returns, he will return as judge, the one who is given power and authority over all of the world. And so what will this judge do when he returns? Well, there will be judgment. Now, I suspect for many people, when we hear of a God who judges, many of us either, us or our friends, find that an offensive idea. Now, how could this God judge me? What right does he have? Or some of us might even find that a foreign idea. How can a loving God judge? Or some of us might just think, well, we don't like that idea that God judges. I mean, isn't God a loving God? Shouldn't he just accept me as I am? But though some of us might think that way about a judging God, I suspect that deep down in all of us, we actually want that. We actually want a judging God. Because we want justice. If we genuinely want complete, perfect justice, then there must be judgment. There's no other way. I mean, don't you want justice when, when your car's been hit by someone and they've taken off? You're too fast for you to take down their number plate. Don't you want justice? God, get them back for me. Or don't you want justice when you see a hit and run and some guy's injured? Don't you want God to get that person back for you? Or don't you want justice when you see wealthy corporate directors who, who exploit the poor and vulnerable? Don't you want justice there? Or don't you want justice to the Hitlers of the world, to the Stalins, to the Pol Pots of the world? You see, deep down, I suspect we actually all want justice. And for there to be justice, there must be an all-knowing God who judges. And Jesus will return as that judge. This judgment will be universal and it will be final. 
And so we see this in the next few verses, verses 32 and 33. Have a look. All the nations will be gathered before him, that is, all people, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So what's this final judgment? What will it look like? Will it be complicated? Will it be various levels of judgment? Well, what we see here is actually quite simple. This is the judgment on the whole world. Every single human being who ever lived from the very beginning to the very end will be separated into only two groups. Into only two groups, the sheep and the goats, the right and the left, the righteous and the wicked, to heaven and to hell. Only two groups in the end and only two destinies. That's what we see here. And so firstly, we see here there's heaven, the kingdom of God, given to those on the right. Have a look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now just imagine on Judgment Day, that is what you hear. That is God's verdict on you. You have found favor with God and the kingdom of heaven is given to you. Think about that. Now I don't think there's anything we enjoy here on earth that comes close to that wonder, that joy, the excitement of heaven. It's actually quite hard sometimes to imagine what heaven is like. You know, sometimes during the holidays when we're on nice drives and the sun is shining, the, the trees are green and it's just beautiful and I'm sitting there with Yvonne and it's just perfect. Life is so good. I say to Yvonne, this is wonderful, isn't it? But, but then we reflect, however good this is, heaven is going to be so much better. It's actually so hard to imagine what heaven is like. But just try to imagine this. Try to imagine life where it is utterly sinless. Never the evil thought, never the hateful desire, never the envious heart, never the shameful regret, ever. Imagine a life like that, but a life that is always filled with purity and joy and service and humility and selflessness and faithfulness and grace. Imagine a life like that. Can you imagine that? Or imagine a life where the love that is expressed is untarnished, undiluted, unblemished in every way. But a life where the love that is expressed between every single human being, not just the people you like, but every single human being, will be untarnished. No in-groups, no cliques, no outcasts, no disunity, no disharmony. And a life where the love that is expressed between God and us will be perfect, no hindrance, no restriction, even to, to the presence of God. I mean, just imagine a life like that. Or imagine a life where our emotions are never fickle, where our tears will never flow, where our sorrows will be a thing of the far past, but a life where there will always be complete and lasting joy and happiness and celebration and praise and glory. Can you imagine that? And imagine a life where we are no longer subject to the ravages of old age and illnesses and diseases and cancers and death. 
but a resurrection life that goes on into eternity in perfect bliss. Can you imagine a life like that? You see, if you can just imagine that type of perfection, then really it's only a a tiny, almost inadequate glimpse of the wonder and glory of what is promised to those who will stand on the right side of Jesus. But then here we must ask, what are the grounds that Jesus would grant such a thing? How do you actually make sure that you're amongst those standing on the right? Well, Jesus tells us, look at verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But then notice in this passage the surprise of the righteous. They question him back. Well, when did we do this, Lord? When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we invite you? When did we care for you? They questioned. They were surprised. But then verse 40 we read, The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, how are we meant to understand that judgment? That was the, that's the basis of the judgment of Christ on the righteous. Now, this part of the passage, this, this bit, has often been wrongly taught to be about social justice, loving and caring, about, uh, uh, caring for everyone, the poor and weak especially, and that your salvation will be ultimately dependent upon you doing good works. You showing compassion, you showing mercy. That's often how this passage is understood, that somehow our salvation is based on doing good works, good things, showing compassion to the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. Now, that's in fact not what this passage is about. Though we should be doing those things, it's not teaching us that the basis of our salvation is based on those things. So how should we understand this? You see, this passage is not about showing mercy and compassion to everyone and that that is the basis of how we are saved. But the basis of this judgment was, have a look, what was done to the least of these brothers of mine? Now, who are they? Who are these that Jesus is referring to? Well, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've already been given clues of who they are. The least of these, the brothers of Jesus, They only refer, they're not everyone, they only refer to the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. All those who follow Jesus are called brothers. All those who follow Jesus as his disciples are the least. They are the one that Jesus is talking about. So all Christians, that is what it's referring to. And so if you think about it that way, you see what this is saying here. The basis of judgment It's not on how much good works anyone does, but how people have aligned themselves with the disciples of Jesus. You see, if my faith in Jesus is genuine, if my love for Jesus is real, then the natural outworking of that is that, of course, I'll be loving my fellow believer. Of course, I'll be caring for my fellow believer. Of course, I'll be concerned for my fellow believer. Of course, I'll be providing if my fellow believer is in need. You see, that is the outworking of genuine faith. And so, for example, 
if you guys share with me or with each other and we have genuine faith that, uh, and, and you share that you are in deep need, in deep crisis, then how do we show that we are for real, that we love Jesus? Well, we show that by loving you too, by caring, by providing, by loving. You see, if my faith is genuine, then my love for my fellow believer must be the same as my love for Christ. And so my loving, gracious care for a fellow believer is evidence that my faith is genuine. So you see, this passage is not talking about teaching us salvation by works. It's showing that our works is evidence of our genuine faith. And that's why in this passage, do you notice there that the righteous was surprised? They, they didn't think much of their good deeds at all. But their good deeds simply reflected that they did love Jesus and that their love for Jesus was genuine. And so do you see what that does? It actually tells us that it eliminates hypocrisy. You can't pretend to be a Christian. If you have genuine faith, then you would naturally do these things without even thinking about it. They are the fruits, the evidence of genuine faith. And so the man I spoke of before, Richard Wormbrand, he, in fact, while he was suffering and in prison, he received such care and love from some fellow believers. When he was kidnapped by the secret police and kept in prison for years in strict, strictest secrecy, a Christian doctor became a member of the secret police to find out where he was kept. As a doctor, he had access to all the prison cells. But in becoming a member of the secret police, this Christian doctor was despised by his family and friends because they thought he's become a communist. And so he did that at great cost to himself. But then this doctor eventually found Richard in a deep, dark cell, the first friend to have found him in eight and a half years of prison. You see, he expressed his genuine faith by caring, by loving. That loving and care is evidence of his genuine faith. And so do you see what Jesus might say to this doctor one day? Jesus will say, the kingdom of heaven is yours. You sought me out when I was in prison. And this doctor will say, well, when did I see you in prison, Jesus? Well, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Do you see how the act of love is evidence of faith? It is not that act of love that saves. And so do you see here how this world responds to Christians? And the gospel we proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. But of course here that's only half the picture as we go on in this, in this story. There's heaven on one side, but yet on the other side there is hell. We often don't like to talk about hell, but that is the image that is painted here, the total opposite. And their judgment we read in verse 41. Jesus says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I mean, if you think about that image, it's an unbearable place where torment will just never end. Now, just like imagining about heaven, I find imagining about hell quite difficult, quite hard. We have all sorts of ideas of hell, fires burning, uh, devils with pitchforks. But have you come across people who describe how as well it's, it's, it's not that bad of a place it's like a big barbecue i'll be there with my mates we'll be on a eternal endless pub crawl but you see if you hear of that description 
That is to get hell totally wrong. That's to get Jesus totally wrong. How do you describe hell? Well, Jesus has described it, but here's another chilling attempt to describe the indescribable. It's from a book by John Chapman. He describes it this way, about the isolation, the aloneness. Listen to this. We had never felt such aloneness before. Where is my wife? He choked. Only an awful echo. Not here. Your wife is not here. He tried to piece it all together, but the darkness was was too thick. Once in a while, he thought he could see a blurred figure or hear an anguished moan. He remembered the pain, those last moments of terror, but it was nothing compared to the feelings that were creeping into his awareness now. Again, he cried, where is my wife? Your wife is not here. Where are my children? Your children are not here. He started to grope about in darkness, but all was blindness. My God, he howled again. Let me feel the presence of one single human being. My God, he hasn't said those words in such a long time. My God, now they seem so hollow. Terror was welling up in him. He felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No candles anywhere, no love anywhere, no voice anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. Where are my children? He pleaded. Your children are not here. Then the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but he knew he would have to. His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and wailed into the nebulous night. Where? Oh, where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that hideous echo whispering the most horrifying of all judgments. God is not here. Can can you imagine that torment, that despair that will be so unbearable but will go on for all eternity? I mean, in a place like that, even if you want to end your life, you can't. That's the terrifying destiny for so many. And what's the reason for such a judgment? Well, those who have no regard for Christians, for the disciples of Jesus, well, they actually show also no regard for Christ. And what will Jesus say to them? Have a look at verse 45. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And so do you see what this passage is making clear to us? There is a day where the judge will return in judgment. There will only be two sides and there will only be two destinies. You can't get any clearer than that from the Bible. And so then, do you understand how unique your role as a Christian is in this world? Because you see, how this world responds to Christians and the gospel you proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. And so what are we to make of all this? Well, tonight, by way of implications, it it, it comes down to just two things. Our destiny, we have to consider that. 
and our life now. Firstly, our destiny. If all that Jesus is telling us, he is all true. If we now know the end before the end, if we now know the coming judgment before it comes, we've been hearing this over the last few weeks, then it means that we better make sure we'll be standing on the right side of Jesus when judgment comes. Then we make sure that when Jesus gives his verdict, it will be not those frightening words of judgment, but it will be those beautiful, sweet, comforting words of verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That is where you want to make sure your destiny lies. And so how do you make sure that you'll be standing on the right side? Well, you see, how you respond to Christians and the gospel they proclaim, that is how you'll be treated. The way you treat Jesus is the way you treat Christians. The way you treat Christians is the way you treat Jesus. And so how should you respond? Well, the way we respond is what we've been hearing each week. You respond by trusting in the one who died for us the Christ who is proclaimed by all Christians to continue to trust in him as saviour and to submit to him as Lord. So he's the one who lived the life we can't. He's the one who died the death we should. He's the one who paid the penalty we deserve. That is the gospel message. It never changes. And so tonight it might be your first time hearing that or it might be a thousandth time you've heard that. It's the same gospel message that saves You see, we don't grow up from that. We stick to that and we keep to that. This is what we try to make clear to our own kids. We always try to drum this into them so that they know that this is the gospel. This is what saves them. And so very often in our devotion or while we're driving, I'll ask them, I'll just test them to see if they actually understand. We want them to understand in their minds but believe also in their hearts, but we'll test them. How will you get to heaven? By trusting in Jesus, they would answer. Why must Jesus die? To pay for our sins, they would answer. Why must you trust in him? Because he's the son of God, they would answer. How did Jesus save us? By dying on the cross, they they would answer. Whatever you do, you see, from this passage, the judgment is clear. Two sides, two destinies, make sure you're certain of where your destiny will be. And if you've got that right then that must change our life now. That must change your life now. Now, here tonight, the bulk of you are perhaps already Christian. But once you've become a Christian, it doesn't stop. You see, you become one of the least of these brothers of Jesus. You actually, in your life now, become an ambassador of Jesus in this world. And so how this world now responds to you and to the gospel you proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. I mean, think about that point again for a moment. It is so profound. I mean, it's not how this world responds to celebrities or the rich and famous or the smart and intelligent or the successful and high uh, achievers that will determine their eternal destiny. But it is how they respond to you as Christians. You're the unique people in this world. It's how they respond to you and the gospel you proclaim that will determine their eternal destiny. And so if you understand that, you have to see how profound that is. 
This is the power you wield as an ambassador of Christ. And so imagine this. On Judgment Day, there will be some there who will be saved because of how they responded to you and the gospel message you proclaimed to them. On Judgment Day, there will be some who will be cursed because of you for how they have rejected you and the gospel message you proclaim to them. Can you imagine your responsibility now as an ambassador of Christ? And so what do you do with that, if you understand that? What do you do with that? Well, what do you do is that you live differently. We must be convicted by this, in a sense. This is our place in the world. We must be convicted by this. We bear this much responsibility. And so we go in evangelism with boldness. We, we witness to Christ with great courage. We persevere even in suffering and even without fear if it means our life. You see, we've been entrusted with so much. We are unique in this world. You see, that was what Richard Wormbrand understood. He understood his unique role in this world. You think looking at his life, he wasted those years in prison. He wasted all those times he was beaten and all that, but he did not think that way. Do you know what he did with his life? Even when he was in prison, he continued to witness, not fearing for his life. They were not allowed to preach in prison, but when they did, they were beaten, but he continued to do so. What would you do? Well, being a normal person, being beaten so much, you'll probably think, come judgment day, God repay them for what they've done to me. But not him, nor his Christian prisoners. They continue to witness even to those who tortured them, even to the secret police. And do you know what happened in the end? They knew their role was unique. In the end, what happened was some of these secret police, in fact, responded in faith. And some of these secret police were later imprisoned because they found Christ as well. And so how do you live in light of this now? Well, you live knowing that how the world responds to you and the gospel you proclaim is what will determine their eternal destiny. And so what do we do? Well, we pray that many will be saved because of you and because of me. So let's pray.